I hope you're strapped in and strapped on. Sex ed, relationship ed, mental health ed. I got an erection during this class and I wasn't embarrassed, thanks so much. The farting while spooning fear. Embracing their curiosity as really healthy and normal and giving them the information that they're curious about. Hi everyone and welcome back to Sex Essentialist. I'm your host, Em, um, and today I am super excited to be joined by not one, but two hosts. I'm here with Christine and Ellie, the hosts of Embarrassed to Ask podcast. Hello. I'm very excited to have you on today. We're excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We're going to go into your podcast and sex ed and everything else. But before we get into that, um, can you each tell me a little bit about kind of how you identify, whatever that means to you? Yeah, Ellie, do you want to go first? You go. Um, so I'm Christine. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a cisgender, straight woman um, and sex educator. Cool. I was hoping yours would inspire mine. Um, <laughs> also, this is Ellie. Sometimes when I listen to people's podcasts and people, I get very confused by the voices of who's talking and then I can't like piece out whose words are words. Anyway, this is Ellie. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I'm a cisgender queer woman and I'm also a sex educator. Um, do similar work to Christine, but in different locations and different positions. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's always fun for me to ask that question. I've, I recently had someone who was like, um, it's so like, what an interesting question. I was like, Hey, some people show up and are like, well, how do I identify? I like karaoke and I'm a leftist. Like people, you know what I mean? Like, and some people it's like, about queer identity, which, you know, for me, that's probably what it would be in like majority of people on a sex podcast. That's what it goes to. Some people just, it's about their hobbies and that's cool too. If I had more hobbies, I might go for that, but I don't have a ton of hobbies outside of work. So I tend to lean yeah. on that. Full-time job, podcaster. It's hard to like make space for anything else in my yeah. experience. That is the, the, the full-time gigs. Um, Cool. So you both mentioned, obviously, that you are sex educators. Um, so kind of going into that, can you each give me a little introduction on your respective backgrounds um, and how you met? I can start this time. Um, I Let's see. I went to Sarah Lawrence College for undergrad. And um, if you don't know anything about Sarah Lawrence, it's like a hippy-dippy liberal arts school in the suburbs of New York. Um, so I did four years there and I had a mostly great experience, learned a lot about myself and about the world and, um, studied abroad in Toledo, Spain for four months, my junior year and like, whatever, longer story than anyone cares about, but like did a whole shift in what I was interested in, what I wanted to study and shifted from like a medical kind of wanting to be an OB and thinking about the healthcare system to wanting to do like public health and thinking about health ed. And I interned at the Red Cross and like taught a lot of like basic health ed classes to a lot of like Spanish speaking um, young people. And so came back from Spain and totally shifted at my last year and did uh, as much public health as I could in like, you know, the year that I had left. And then I went straight to grad school. Um, that's where Christine and I met. You can finish the story if you want, but I now live in Chicago. I work at a social services agency um, as a community educator. So I teach in a lot of Chicago public schools and then also a lot of Jewish schools um, doing sex ed, relationship ed, mental health ed. So I'm from Seattle, went to UW for undergrad. Um, and then I traveled around for a couple of years. I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. I knew I had a passion for sex ed and like the sexual health field in general. 
Um, but I didn't know that that could be a job. Like I had never seen it before. And I think outside of a health teacher who often teaches PE and then sometimes teaches sex ed for a couple weeks out of the school year, I didn't know um, all of the possibilities that that you could have a career in this field. And so I just kind of put it on the back burner as like, this is something I'm interested in, but not something I could make a real job, right? So I was in education for a couple those couple years um, before I landed a job at Planned Parenthood working as a sex ed teacher. And I did not, until I saw the job posting, I didn't actually know that that was a real job. (laughs) So (laughs) it was awesome. And um, I worked there. So I taught sex ed K through 12 for a few years and it was awesome. And I loved that experience so much. And I'm really grateful for it as like an entryway into the field. And while I was there, I kind of realized, um, you know, I, I love going to school. I kind of always thought I'd go to grad school, but I also realized how much more I had to learn. Um, and learning on the job is great and works for so many people. But I just, as a person who loves school, I really wanted to go back and and learn more. And so um, went to grad school at Columbia and met Ellie and, um, and lots of other folks in our field and just kind of broadened my viewpoint of what, what this field is and what it can look like. So yeah, we started podcasting and then I moved back to Seattle after grad school um, and got a job. I'm doing some sex ed in the classroom now, but mostly I'm actually working with teachers to train them to, to teach sex ed. So kind of moved from working with students to adults um, and that's had its challenges, but here we are. <laughs> and I'll just awesome. uh, talk up Christine for a sec because it's one of my favorite pastimes. Um, Christine, so we like, we had the same advisor in grad school, which isn't so relevant. And that's how we met. And then we started teaching together and we co-taught a couple virtual sex ed classes, which was fun. Um, but there's actually not anyone else in this. Yeah, I think that's a true statement. There's not anyone else that thinks so closely to how I think and works so closely to how I work. And we often share a brain. And so it's, it's been really fun to, we don't teach together anymore, but we podcast and do lots of other weird thought experiments and so like having someone who shares a lot of the same passions and then you know does the same amount of crazy work on these topics that I do um has been really fun and also Christine I hope you don't get mad that I say this is six years older than me and so it's also cool to have a friend who has just like different life experiences and has taught longer than I have and can bounce ideas off of each other I love that sisters. (laughs) it is like you know when people talk about their work wives Ellie is like on a different level. Like I've never worked with someone so seamlessly before. Um, We just like, I feel like I create, I'm the most creative when I'm working with Ellie. I don't think I could have created the content that I did or had a podcast with anyone else. So it's been really great. And I do like that we're, yes, I'm six years older, but we're at slightly different um, kind of stages and experiences. But I think it brings a lot to to our work too, to have those different perspectives. We're an average 27. That's what we tell ourselves. Which is like the perfect age. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, I think it – well, so this is the first time I've interviewed two people, like a like a partnership, um, and I was really excited to do it, and I've kind of had my radar out. And I think part part of it is because I'm envious of like the the having a podca- co-podcast host. My best friend like was in my pilot, and she's been on multiple episodes, and she's like a big supporter but like would never dedicate – all of the time it takes to do this just because it's not her main priority, which is totally fine. Um, so I'm like slightly jealous, but also like admire your creative collaboration and like clearly the love and affection that I'm seeing in, in this like kind of corny uh, podcast experience. Um, sorry, listeners, there's a lot of love happening. Um, 
this is how we how we um aspire to be but no that makes me so happy that um you guys get to have that and and do that and i know obviously that it sounds like some of the collaboration that came from teaching together kind of led into wanting to podcast together or whether that was an excuse to like maintain the working relationship or just because you had a lot to say um i'd love to hear kind of like where like what gave birth to eta i jokingly like left a comment on a a document that we had been working on of like we should just start a podcast because we both clearly have a lot to say like yeah. we talk a lot we talk very fast i'm over caffeinated this morning so it's probably even faster than normal um but yeah and, and i think we both felt like um in a lot of ways teaching sex ed in the classroom is so awesome but there's so much that you can't say uh for you know just appropriateness but also legal reasons and all that you don't want to get kicked out so it was like oh, we just wish that we had a different space to be able to say all the things that we can't always talk about um, yeah. and be a little more uh, unfiltered. So so that was kind of where it started. I just made a joke. And then Ellie was like, no, 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 we're really going to do that. And and we started it within a couple months. It was a really quick process. And yeah, it's been it's been great. It's it's a lot of work, though. So I actually really admire you for for doing it by yourself. Like, I can't imagine it's even just dividing the work into it. And we have my brother who does all the audio engineering. It's so much work. So I'm really impressed that that you kind of do this all on your own. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky because I um, and I, I don't have to talk about myself. This is I'm interviewing you guys for my show, so I won't talk about myself a bunch. But yeah, no, I was looking for basically a gateway into sex education, um, and I wanted an excuse to interview industry experts and like basically people about their personal experiences as well. Um, so like I have episodes obviously on like purity culture, which, um, you know, you don't have to be a sex educator to talk about that, but like having firsthand accounts and I just wanted to get my hands dirty kind of leading into, so I'm like a certified, um, like middle school and high school sex educator. So I teach through a community program though. It's, it's secular and not a part of a school. So, um, I can say a lot more, um, than most people, but I'm also only certified mm-hmm. in this like individual curriculum. So like my goal long-term is to be more of like, have, have more of a widespread universal certification. But um, I was looking, I was looking to educate myself kind of leading into educating others. And that's, that's how this was done. So I didn't, I didn't have anyone else who was like, I'm a sex educator and I want to make a podcast too. Um, which <laughs> is hence where slight, some of my like slight envy comes from your uh, friendship. Uh, but yeah, I love that. I love that it came from a a joke but it seems like I mean especially from listening to ETA like yes um you guys have a lot to say in a really great way um and I won't fangirl too much I feel like you know when I have people on the podcast like oh I love your show it's really great but I actually really do love your show and I think part of it too is because there aren't that many people that I've spoken to who have experienced teaching kids um and like some of the the um I just think that there's a lot um, that you have to change about the way you think and talk about sex when you're talking to a younger audience, which we'll get into that later. Okay, um, as as part of my intro, before we get into all that goodness, um, I enjoy having guests share a little fun anecdote about themselves, like a funny sex and or dating story that's like, oh, you know, like, oh, classic Christine or like, oh, classic Ellie, what a funny, you know, like my one is that I you know, had got a friction burn, like the first time I ever had a one night stand and my vagina broke and like, it's iconic. Um, 
But um, yeah, so if either or both of you have a, an anecdote, I would love to hear it now. <laughs> I can start. This is fun. Christina and I don't do as much of this on our show. And I was thinking recently about why that is part of it's because people that I've dated in the past listen to ETA. And so I have to be a little careful about what I share, but um, I don't, I can't remember if I've told this story just to you or on the podcast, which happens often. So whatever, it might be a repeat. Um, (laughs) Like two months ago, maybe, I don't know what day it is. Three months ago. um, I went to the like Chicago, like the downtown Chicago Christmas market. And it was like a second date. And I was like not super enthused, but I was trying to like push myself to meet new people and like make new friends. And I haven't lived here for very long. And so it's like, you got it, whatever. So I was like, I'm going to do this thing. So I like go to this Christmas market and it's like, it's like much colder now, but it was very cold and like only sort of pleasant. And so we're like walking around this Christmas market and it's like super packed and like really cold. And I'm not that interested in this date. And I was like, this is not a good time. And also every stand only took cash. And for some reason, my debit card was the only one that worked at the ATM. So I ended up shelling out like 50 bucks on this date that I was like not excited about because her like debit card didn't work. And I was like, whatever. And so we like are going home and we get on the L and we happen to be taking the same L home, which was dumb because I was like really just ready to part ways. And so we like get on the L and then probably like we were far from my house and even further from her house and the L stops which is like never a good sign and it stops because there's an unauthorized person on the tracks and so I was like cool um and so we're like stuck on this train for what ended up being like an hour and I'm sitting next to this date that I'm like really would rather have ended an hour ago next to these two lovely people who I ended up chatting with the entire time because I had nothing left to say to this person on the date so I was talking to these two people they were lovely and actually just spent a lot of the time talking about sex ed and like promoting ETA because what else am I going to do on a stopped L car for an hour the person across from me is like a probably she was like my age she's just sobbing like full-on panic attack and I was like I don't know how to support you because I don't know you, but also I feel really bad that you're by yourself and freaking out. Whatever. So we're on this train car for like an hour and then the the car finally starts moving. And I was like, ready to, we were like debating, do we just get off at the next stop? Do we like keep going? So we kept going. We were like, we'll just take, I'm like super cheap. And I was like, I don't want to pay for an Uber. The city's expensive. I'll just like make my way home. And then the fucking car stops. Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Say say whatever you want. (laughs) Great. Okay. (laughs) So then the train car stops again and I was like, I can't do this. So we get off and we like take the same, I think we must've gotten in the same lift, two different lifts. I don't remember. We like take our lift home, whatever. So I ended up spending like a hundred bucks on this date that I was like less than excited about. And I got home two hours later than I was supposed to. And so she texts me afterward and was like, I had such a great time. Like next time we'll go somewhere that doesn't involve the L and I'll pay. And I had to respond being like, actually... I'm like less than interested in the next time I said it a lot nicer than that. I used um, <laughs> some good Instagram templates on how to not ghost people. But um, yeah, just, you know, stuck on the L with people you don't want to be on dates with. And it's like hot and sweaty. And also COVID, there's like still a pandemic. So everyone's yeah. like taking their masks off, but it's like hot, whatever. It was um, not the most, that was the last date I've been on. I like was a little like, scarred for a few weeks. Yeah, no, that is a nightmare. And I know what market you're talking about, too. And depending on what day you went, the market was probably an absolute clusterfuck to go to. Yeah. 
Um, I avoid that. I went one year and I just like hard pass since then. Um, it's not worth it. And I thought it was going to be way, way different. I'm also not Christian. Maybe I should have said that. I'm, that's I'm Jewish. And so it was just like all these like Christmas ornaments. And I was like, Hanukkah already happened. I don't need Christmas <laughs> ornaments. I simply just don't care. Can, can we yeah. please leave? <laughs> yeah. It's like you go there for like hot alcohol and it's sort of like, well, I could put wine in a pot and cook it on my stove right. and have a better <laughs> night than, than this. Um, yep. So that's, yeah, no, that's very fair. And I also know the pain of having the train just stop. And it sucks when you're between stops as well. Cause there's just no out. There's no out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's horrible. I'm sorry. I mean, it's funny, hopefully now kind of in hindsight, it's like, wow, what a series of unfortunate events, but. Well, and this girl, this is the last thing I'll say, and then Christine should talk, but Christine and I have an event that by the time this comes out may have already passed, but we have this like live event coming up that we're really excited about. And so I'm I'm talking about literally anything that can come to mind to just pass the time on this fucking train car. And that event came up and this girl put it in her phone. And so I was like, I mean, odds that she shows up now are like ex- incredibly low. But I was like, we've been on two dates. Like, you really don't have to come to this event. It's really okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, cool. Excellent story. Also, like knowing Chicago, the obnoxious thing is if you choose to like walk the two blocks between red line stops because you like don't want to bother getting on the train. I have run into people I've had like shitty dates with, like just on the street. Because it's like, oh, I chose to walk instead of hop on the train for two stops. And then they're like, hey, like, haven't heard from you in a while. And I'm like, yeah, because I told you that this wasn't, you know, wasn't going to happen. But anyway, just, yeah. (laughs) I hope that doesn't happen to you, but knock on wood. (laughs) Ellie, that could have been such a cute, meet cute story if you had been interested in her. So it's kind of a bummer. And I was, like, scouting at everyone else on the train. I was like, is there anyone else that's cool here that I can be friends with? <laughs> like, anyone else yeah, single and available today? Yeah, yeah, that one's Um. Okay, I guess I can go. I, I, um, I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend for, like, six years, and so I was really trying to pull back into my memory bank of, like, my yeah. single dating sexcapades. And actually, Em, when you said you had friction burns I was like oh my god remember having carpet burns on your back that one time yeah I totally forgot about that <laughs> so I thought of two stories okay um I welcome both okay I was gonna say I can Let's give you a short it. synopsis and you can choose they're both pretty Wait, quick can you pause for a sec has it been six years with Jacob I thought it's been five six can you believe as of when no. Why was I not informed? We don't <laughs> we don't have an anniversary, so it's like November-ish, November, December. Um, Damn. I know. Getting old. Jacob's very cool. No one asked, but thought I should tell everyone. He is the best. The reason I didn't include my anecdotal story with him is because I was like, no one needs to hear me gush about how in love I am with my boyfriend for Just listen to some of ETA. She does it all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A um, lot of a lot of my show is like, oh yeah, um, my partner's like I just talk about my own sex life sometimes. Sometimes it comes up and he's just like, Hey, I'm still here and I my penis is being discussed and it's yeah. fine. But yeah. Yeah. I try to filter myself a little because um my Jacob's mother listens to our podcast. So uh, I gotta be a little, you know, respectful yeah. of his his boundaries there. So. No, that's totally fair. I do not have that problem. So Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, she's great, but we just try to be a little filtered there. Yeah, yeah. 
We, okay. So I thought of two college stories that just show, both, first of all, super drunk in both of them. Second of all, like I was just a ridiculous person and like so embarrassed to communicate <laughs> clearly. Um, so the first one, I was out one night and brought a guy home. They both start the same way. I was out one night and brought a guy home. Um, but this guy, we were actually friends in high school. I'd known him for years. Anyways, so we went back to my place, had a sleepover, and he woke up in the middle of the night to pee. And I guess I should preface this by saying, one, that we were both really drunk. Two, that I lived in a not very safe neighborhood. Like there were bars on my windows. And so I slept with my door locked every night. All of us did. I lived with like 10 girls. And um, so when he got up to pee in the night, I woke up still kind of drunk and like half asleep and saw my door open shut the door and locked it and fell back to sleep. (laughs) So he's in his underwear out, like he can't get back into my room. (laughs) And it's January, it's freezing. And he slept on our futon with no blanket and just like in his underwear. (laughs) So I woke up in the morning and I remembered he had slept over and I was like, wait, where is he? That's weird that he would have just left like we're friends. And I saw his jeans and his sweatshirt on the floor. I was like, Oh God, like I kind of remembered like waking up and just forgetting that he was there. So came outside and my friends were all laughing at him on the couch. Someone had given him a blanket. Um, But anyway, so that was, I felt really bad, but just a ridiculous, ridiculous night. I mean, your priority was safety and I feel like he can't fault you for that. So no, he like wasn't mad at all. He thought it was really funny. So luckily he's yeah a nice person, but um. (laughs) Yeah, just what a ridiculous thing to have happen to <laughs> literally forget that there's someone sleeping at your house. Yeah. The second one is more embarrassing for me. I brought a guy home. I had a major crush on this guy. And we decided not to have sex because we were both had been drinking a lot and we were like, let's not. And we were kind of like hinting like, oh, maybe in the morning though kind of thing. So I wake up and we are spooning. He's laying behind me and I'm like giddy. I have butterflies. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this boy who I have a major crush on is in my bed. And <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling this right. I have an immediate need to fart. And I'm like, I am confident it's going to be silent. Like a hundred percent confident. I'm also confident that he is asleep. Like I can, the way he's breathing, I'm like, he's asleep. It was not silent. This was the longest, loudest fart I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm farting like into his dick because he's spooning. And I'm like, oh God, please just let him be asleep. He starts laughing and like, but like kind of silently. And then so I pretend like I'm asleep. Oh my God. I just wait like 30 minutes and then we don't talk about it at all. We don't have sex. We never have sex after this. So that was just so embarrassing. I still, I'm like turning red thinking about it. I still get like a flood of anxiety when I think about that. The, the, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we need to do an episode on Christine's college experiences because the problem is that I only have known you while you're dating the same person, which is wonderful. Jacob's great. I'm his biggest fan, but it means I don't know any of these fun stories because we don't talk about them. Single Christine was a ridiculous person. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The the farting while spooning fear is one that I experience regularly. And I, I'm also in a long-term relationship, so it's like he's like pretty locked down at this point, so it's fine. But I, like, my partner, he, I don't know if it's like, so he's British, and I think some of it is like a cultural difference because like I'll pee with the door open 
because it's like, this is my house. But when he walks by the bathroom, he's like, what is this woman doing? Like, he doesn't care, but he's like, never in my life has this ever happened to me. And he's he was in a, a five-year-long relationship before we met. So it's like, there's stuff like that where I'm like, I really, like, yes, he would like laugh at it and still love me and it would be fine. But I'm like, he's like just a little bit posh enough to where I'm like, I can't, I can't fart on his dick, right? Because then he'll leave yeah. me. Uh, there's like just absolutely no way that I can make that happen. Uh, so, so no, I get it. And we talked about this on one of our episodes. You said you pee with the door open. Ellie and I both agree that that's appropriate in relationships and comfortable for us. But we do not go number two with the door open. No. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your partner would not be down. <laughs> so, yeah. Hard to agree. Ellie, are you about to say something? I feel like you're about to say something. Well, no, I just live alone and I'm single. So none of these things apply because I, the door is constantly open because there's literally no one else here. So. Yeah. Yeah, I I will close the door if it's a number two situation. Also, like our current apartment has fans in the bathroom, which like doesn't Mm. happen very often, I think. And so that's that is a gift. But quick, funny anecdote about my partner. Um, He we were friends for a long time before we started dating. And then, um, you know, like we started living together kind of shortly thereafter. So when we were friends, we would like hang out like all the time I was always at his apartment, just the two of us. And so like before we went out and did something, he was like, oh, I'm going to go take a shower. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. He was just like, oh, I'm like watching Netflix on his TV. And um, he would be in the bathroom for like a long time. And so when we were friends, I was like, oh, he's masturbating, which is fine because I'm here all the time and we're not having sex and I get it. Like he got to rub one out. No problem. Um, but then we started sleeping together and he would take really long showers. And I was like, we just fucked. We just fucked. And he's one wants a shower by himself, which is fine. I like to shower with him sometimes, but like, that's okay. And he's still masturbating. He, and he still does this. We live together and he still does this. He turns on the shower while he poops. And then he insists on taking a shower right after he poops. So there's never been a shower masturbation incident. Every time he was like, I have to poop. And then like, I, he needs to be clean after. This is a thing that he has. And so for him, it's like, it's not even like a shame thing. It's like a sacred alone time thing. Like he like yeah. plays music and like creates a space for himself to have alone time with his body. Like that's what's happening, which is like kind of nice self-care thing when you think about it. But it is really like, I can't, um, we don't, yeah, we don't share poop experiences because that's his time. But no, I got to keep like some things mysterious some things I mean it's comfortable I feel the same way I don't turn the shower on but I do and like this is just my private moment yeah and that's that's what it is we do say like ask for privacy our fan is not great so I'm like hey would you mind uh going to sit in the living room for a moment thank you that's great (laughs) yeah yeah we do that too sometimes he'll be like I need you to go away (laughs) yeah okay I will leave I need you to leave yeah and that's, yeah, that's totally <laughs> fair. Um, you know, individual moments are good. And I think, too, like, part of it now, and just unintentionally but relevantly tying it back to sexuality, like, I am now a pretty big proponent of ass play, which was not always part of my sexual experience. So for me, I'm also, like, I want to keep that, like, a safe mm-hmm. – and, he, I mean, he's great. Again, he's, like, never once has he been, like, ew, butts are gross. Like, he's – very comfortable with it and like um has experienced all kinds of 
butt play. So he's like the safest person I would have ever experienced that with, which is part of why now it's like a fun, cool thing for me. But um, yeah, I want to like especially be like my ass for my partner is like fun and sexy. And I don't want him to affiliate it with bodily functions just for my own sanity. So I just, now I have to like draw a line in a way that I definitely probably wouldn't have like two years ago. So yeah, I I totally get that. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing. That was very fun and um, very different stories from both of you, which again, makes me so happy that I'm having a conversation with two people because I feel like I'm getting so much information about um, who you are, um, which is fun for me. Um, Okay, cool. So just for my listeners, before we dive into our questions for their context, could y'all give me a little bit of an overview of Embarrassed to Ask? Because we know we've talked about your backgrounds and obviously some of the topics that y'all have covered, but like what what is ETA as a podcast? I can start. So, and I maybe should have said this when you asked why we started the podcast, but, um, and if you want the full, full story, listen to episode one of season one, I guess. That's weird to say. Um, but Christina and I took this class in grad school. And by took this class, I mean, we were each in it for like two weeks. Um, that was about, it was supposed to be about STIs. And I was really excited because I, I had never taken a class explicitly on STIs and felt like that was a really kind of like missed piece of my like public health education. And so I was like, well, I'm going to get this whole like semester long class on STIs and really learn how to like destigmatize them in my work and really have great conversations with students about like how chlamydia is a really normal part of sexual activity, whatever. And that's not what the class was. It was um, like a mix of stigmatizing and homophobic and just like generally offensive. And so Christine and I both dropped the class, but because we both kind of have issues or maybe I just have issues with like letting things go and not like letting them get to me. We um, also part of ETA was a way for us to like unpack what happened in that class. That's the entire first episode, which is like pretty different from the rest of our episodes, but we spent like an hour kind of just unpacking really every single thing that happened in the class while we were in it and like why it's so harmful. And we're going to do a new episode on STIs that's like a little bit different and more educational and not just a rant. But um, (laughs) so some of it came from that class. Some of it came from like what Christine said of just wanting to have a space for like, I don't know, especially now that I like am teaching again and I don't teach full time, but I teach pretty often and like having a space to talk more openly about these things where I'm not going to be like, criticized by a seventh grader is really lovely um but yeah the goal of ETA from my perspective at least is to give people kind of like what's the tagline we use like the sex ed that you didn't get in high school or something like that that's not it it's something something along those lines yeah um yeah just giving I don't know just like and and part of it also like Christina I used to send and still sort of do like tons of audio messages back and forth just like discussing and we were like this is stupid let's like put this out into the world and so it's just a way for us to give people some of the sex ed content that they likely didn't receive when they were younger and then to kind of unpack some of these topics in ways that are I think a little bit more nuanced than people are going to find elsewhere. I would just add the something that we do at the end of every episode is we read and answer anonymous questions that we've gotten from students in the classroom Um, and I think I mean, I hope that people find that the answer is useful, but I've also gotten a lot of feedback from adults who are just like, maybe they knew the answer to that, but they're more fascinated that like a sixth grader asked that question. It's kind of opening people's minds to the ages at which people are wondering about these things, are hearing about these topics. And I think, you know, sometimes we 
we have this idea that like young people almost don't have a sexuality and that they shouldn't and that we should like protect them from it in some ways rather than embracing their curiosity as really healthy and normal and giving them the information that they're curious about. So yeah, I, I think that that's really important too, is just shedding some light on the questions that we get really frequently and the questions repeat all the time because across the board, 12 year olds are thinking about and wondering about the same things. And so, you know, they deserve answers too. And I'll also just say one thing that has kind of come out of this that I don't think either of us expected is we've also done some episodes on mental health that have gotten deeper than I think either of us had ever intended, which is a great thing. Um, And so we recorded an episode for season two that's like, I don't want to spoil it for people, but like a a deeper dive into specifically Christine's kind of mental health in the moment. And we're going to record one for me today at some point soon. Um, And so like using it kind of to think about too the ways that sex ed or just sexuality in general intersect with mental health and like being really vulnerable and honest about the challenges that we're experiencing to kind of normalize talking really openly about those things. Yeah, I love that. So, I mean, you just covered a a bunch of stuff and um, one of which kind of segues into a question I have. And so I'll get to that in a minute, but on the mental health front, um, I find that so many, so for example, like my season two um, episode one, like just dropped and it is basically about um, getting back on the horse, so to speak, like after a traumatic breakup or, or not even necessarily traumatic, I guess, in in some instances, like just um, experiencing a, a form of loss, like how do you get back into sex and dating, whatever that looks like, whether it's like casual sex or, or exploring sexuality or whatever, just how, how do you kind of go through it? And it's um, just with a friend of mine um, and, and we like at every turn come back to therapy um, and, and basically the relationship between sex and and mental health. And it's sort of like um, when I was recording a bunch of episodes for season two, it's just like mental health and well-being is very much at the center of, um, of like who we are as, as sexual beings, but also like the, the ways that we could have, um, prevented some of the, um, the things that inevitably impact our adult mental health, um, through sex education, which is it, it truthfully, like I, you know, came to the idea of wanting to pursue sex education when I was in therapy. And I, I talk openly in my podcast. I see a therapist every week. I've been seeing her for three years. She's like my favorite person. Talked to her this morning. Um, like I just think it's, it's so important. So, uh, I really appreciate both of you being vulnerable about that because I think that is something that definitely needs to talk about. I mean, obviously both sex education and mental illness, like need to be talked about more readily, and in like a stigma-free um, way. Um, so I feel like you're covering a lot of bases by being vulnerable about that um, in ETA. So I'm very excited to listen to that. And I will definitely um, let other people know that if they're looking for more like shared stories, um, that y'all are where they need to be. Um, <laughs> so yeah, super excited for that. Um, another thing that you kind of touched on um, in, in terms of talking about the podcast is one of my favorite parts about it, um, just because it ties to some of my own personal experiences, um, is like the, the questions from students. And I would love to hear some of your favorite questions um, that you remember kind of off the top of your head. Um, and by favorite, I mean, it could be like funny or insightful or thoughtful, or like you were just excited to receive it. Um, but I will quickly share one of mine was I had a kid um, write a question that was um, 
<laughs> it was written, what is an organism? Like, how does yeah. it sound? Um, and I was like, cool. So, and I, I, when I started teaching, I was like, I took sex ed and I took comprehensive sex ed because I had very sex positive parents and no one explained to me what an orgasm was. Like, it just never came up. Um, and I understood the like function of the like penis owner ejaculating for reproductive purposes, but not anything else. And so I was being very assertive about defining that for everyone in the room, um, for anyone regardless of their body parts. And so I liked that it was like, what is an organism though? Because we hadn't written it out anywhere. And then like, what does it sound like? And I was like, that's a fascinating question. Like, what does it sound like? How do you know? Like, anyway, so that was a favorite one of mine, but I'd love to hear some favorite questions from students uh, for y'all. That's so funny that you said you didn't know what an orgasm was. I don't, I definitely didn't either until I like had one. I, I also remember when someone explained penis and vagina sex to me, it was like the penis goes inside the vagina and I just like was like, so you just like soak in it? Like you just like wait? Like I didn't know that there was like movement that happened. Yeah. Anyways, so many confusing things. Um, but I, I also taught in a community program in addition to the K through 12 schools and the ability to answer um, yeah. really shifted. And so, yeah, it was it was more fun to be able to answer more honestly yeah. um, or more thoroughly, I guess, not honestly. Um, one question that comes to mind is, was I think fifth or sixth grade and they we had been talking about erections and like what to do if you experience one at school and people were like you know this is just kind of happens spontaneously at this age and like um it might feel embarrassing but just like know that it's natural and whatever and someone wrote I got an erection during this class and I wasn't embarrassed thanks so much (laughs) (laughs) yes I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for letting me know. I also have gotten so many, I I think I used to keep them all and then I don't know what happened to them, but I have gotten probably 10 questions asking me if I'm a virgin. And I'm like, do I give off like 30 year old virgin vibes or what? I don't, (laughs) but I've gotten it so many times. Really weird. That's very interesting. I do think like there is a weird, um, in my experience at least, and I'm sure y'all have experienced this to an extent as well, but a lot of like the kids are looking at you as like the adult, not the adult representation of sexuality because that's kind of a pedestal, but it's very much like you're not my parents, but you're talking to me about sex. Like what is your sexual identity? Like what are you yeah. doing? Like what, how, not how do I replicate it, but like, you know, what do normal adults do in terms of sex? And so maybe that's a roundabout way of being like, um, not wanting to ask you like what your <laughs> what your deal is, you know, yeah. like what kind of sex you're having, who you're having it with, like they're yeah. instead they're just like, are you virgin? Right. I th- and I mean this was probably closer to when I was like 25, 26. So, and I looked younger. I wonder if I remember someone writing in like the evaluation too, like it's so great to learn from someone our age. And I'm like, do you think I'm in high school? Like, <laughs> so it's possible too that they maybe thought I was not quite an adult I don't know got it yeah I have baby face I get that a lot because I am on the I'm about to turn 26 and so but a lot of people are like um so 1920 and I'm like no I'm I work I work in finance full-time I have a real life job so actually I'm good but yeah yeah (laughs) I recently taught um 
five sessions, six sessions, I don't know, a long time at a school in Chicago, um, seventh and eighth graders, and like loved it, had like such an incredible experience, like really formed some great relationships with these kids. And um, the teacher insisted for like the first two or three sessions that they all like, they all ask a question so that like they, they're paying attention, which was like fucking annoying. Let's just name that because I ended up with like 28 pages of questions and answers that I like, and I'm, Christine will tell you, like annoyingly thorough sometimes. So it took me forever to get these answers written and like get back to them. And they'd like ask me in class, like, do you have my answer? And I'd be like, no, because you all wrote 112 questions and it takes me time to answer them. And so whatever. So there were like a lot of questions to choose from to answer this question. Um, So one that I think is more sad, I guess is the word. And also um, these are the moments where I almost cry on ETA and I've promised myself I'll never cry on the podcast, but a student wrote like a series of like, it was, I think it's, yeah, it was a boy writing this question for context. So it was like, I think I like boys. Um, will God still love me? And like, am I going through a phase? And so how you like, just, I don't know. I, I didn't have good queer role models as a kid and like, didn't have the opportunity to like, um, think about my identity in that way, not when I was in seventh grade. And so like being able to be that person for these kids, even anonymously to be able to say like, anyone can like boys and going through a phase is a stupid word or stupid phrase and God still loves every, whatever, like being able to be the person that like reassures kids is really wonderful and fun and also sad. And I just want, and I like happen to know who wrote it because they don't do the greatest job of like using, they like write their questions in like big blue marker or like purple crayon. And you're like, okay, well I know who wrote this. And so I knew who it was. So it was also kind of like a, okay, just like having a little bit of sympathy and trying to be as like positive of a role model as I can, but also on a funnier note, a kid raised his hand and was like, have you ever been tested for STIs? And let me tell you, I don't usually panic when kids ask me questions, but for whatever reason, I like really panicked and stood there and was like, what do I do? Do I tell this kid the correct answer or do I like in an effort to like normalize what I just like really was going back and forth. And so finally I was like, and also like, could like, I don't think I've actually ever formally been tested for STIs. It's mostly like I get a lot of UTIs and then I'll go to an OB and then they'll test me for things as whatever the kids need to know that. And so I decided I was like, fine, I'll just tell them I have been to like normalize that it's like something everyone should do. And it's a part of keeping your body healthy, but I like truly panicked and have just kind of like stood there. I don't know how long it felt like seven years for me um, of like, "Mm, interesting. I don't know how to respond to that. Um, Okay. And then quickly yesterday I was teaching, I subbed in for my coworker because she was exposed to COVID. And so I, taught these kids who, and like they had had five six seven sessions with my coworker and had never met me before so it's like a little bit awkward and like half of them were missing because they all have COVID or were exposed to COVID so it's like me and like four boys teaching consent ed and I was like okay um and so we're talking about consent we're talking about boundaries and we're talking about whatever all the things that come along with those topics and there's a scenario we have of like two people who have gender neutral names and like you know we use they them pronouns and we try to make things as inclusive as possible and a student raises his hand and he's like everyone had agreed that the situation was not consensual, right? There was pressure to have sex. People were not consenting, whatever. We had all, we had all agreed on that. And this guy raises his hand and he's like, well, are they gay? And I was like, it doesn't matter. It's still not consensual. And he's like, essentially was like, well, if they're like going through a phase where they like think they're gay, but then they're bi and like kept going on and on. And I honestly just tuned it out. Cause I was like, I don't really need to hear what you think about gay people. Um, and so it took some time to like unpack 
the phrase going through a phase and why that's really harmful. And then whatever, did the whole like as much as I could to make it a teachable moment. But it's like such a spectrum of like really insightful questions, really funny questions, and then questions that are just blatantly offensive. And it's like, Mm -hmm. how in the moment do you course correct and not like get personally offended and like yell at a kid or, you know, chastise a kid? Yeah. I, so I'm lucky a little bit because, um, all of our questions, um, like the kids know that at the end of class, everyone has to put an index card in the question box. And so they, they do ask questions during the lesson, but a lot of the time they just know that they can ask a bunch of questions on the question on the index card. So they just won't, um, like we ask questions and they'll answer them, but like a lot Mm -hmm. of times they'll just save their questions. Um, and it, sometimes it's tough. So I have, in, um, we just finished a, a term, but I had a, um, in this class of like 15, there's four adults and 15 kids because um, we're all volunteers. And so like um, we, the, the kids, the parents are paying for like paying the nonprofit, so to speak, but like we're volunteering to do it. And then um, we just like divide and conquer. Um, and, and so it's, it's nice to have more adults, but um, out of the 15 kids, there were a pair of twins who um, were, or are neurodivergent. And so they, their parents were basically like, um, you know, like they're capable of absorbing the curriculum, but like are a little bit behind and have, have some difficulty, um, like talking about some of it, but they're clearly like absorbing it. And so there was, um, I'm lucky cause one of my co-teachers, um, and now a friend is like a, an actually public school teacher for middle school. And so they had a really, they, they were much more equipped to like adapt the curriculum and had the tools to do that. And so the rest of us kind of learned from them, but, um, they would like shout answers to some things and never offensive, I would say, but it was clear that like they had heard stuff from a song or like an internet and you have to be like, I like, I didn't want to like break their heart because they like stood up and shouted an answer like super enthusiastically. And you don't want to like shut that down, but being like, actually like, no, that's just really incorrect. And like, here's what it actually means. But I will say really quickly, there was one time where one class we were talking about um, a number of um, like more serious topics, including homophobia. And I was, I basically asked um, the class to define homophobia for me or if they were familiar with the term. And um, one of the twins raised their hand and was basically like, I don't really remember the definition, but I feel like it's located in the heart. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Uh, sometimes it's annoying and frustrating and sometimes you're like, this is to- like, you're totally derailing it, but also like in a really sweet and adorable way. And like, I don't want to shut you down. But um, one of the things I would say that I love about um, ETA, um, including like the way that both of you talk about sex and education um, is um, kind of the strive for inclusivity um, and like taking into account, um, you know, some of the like intersectional, um, components of sex and sex education um, and like seems like translating those into um, the way that you educate. Um, can you speak a little bit about um, kind of what you've learned about making sex ed accessible and inclusive um, and kind of what changes maybe the two of you have seen um, in your, um, you know, in the last several years in terms of sex ed changing for hopefully the better? you asked what have you learned and I'm like everything um I like I mean I got interested in this field probably similar to a lot of sex educators because my sex ed sucked and I left feeling so confused and had so many questions that went unanswered 
And it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized for a lot of other students in the class, not only were they confused and had unanswered questions, but they were harmed. Like there was blatant inf- like information being taught that was harmful to them or didn't mm-hmm. explicitly didn't include them and their experiences um, almost purposefully. And so, you know, learning as a cis straight woman, white woman, like later on of how other students in the class must have felt after that beyond just feeling confused um, really opened my eyes to how how much sex ed needed to be improved, not just in the amount of information given, but who is being considered in the curriculum um, and who's feeling seen in the classroom. Uh, and yeah, so so I've, I've learned a ton and there's been a massive learning curve and I'm still learning all the time, of course. Um, you asked another question after that. Yes. Um, kind of like what changes um, have you seen made in kind of sex ed- education as a whole uh, for the better? Yeah. I, I mean, I think sex ed in general has always been written f- by and for, for the most part, white, straight, cis people. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's changing, which is really important. The other thing I would say, I mean, I live in Washington and we uh, mandated sex ed last year. So now it's it's mandatory in all public schools and it cannot be abstinence only. And so policy changes have been really important too. And things that I've seen five years ago, like I watched an educator from a um, crisis pregnancy center teach a lesson and literally crumpled up a piece of paper and unfolded it and was like, see, the, and like trying to discuss how this was like your virginity. And it's like, you can never get this back. And the fact that all of that, while I'm sure it still happens in some places, is technically illegal, really makes me hopeful that that blatant shame um, and fear that we're instilling in young people um, in the sex ed field for a really long time, hopefully will continue to go away. Obviously not in all states, but I'm, I'm hoping that that shift is being made as well, in addition to just being more inclusive of, of all of your students in the classroom and making sure that they get the information that they need and deserve. Hmm. I think one thing that I um, am really aware of is just the language that I use. And I think that that seems simple and often can be, but just being like, when I teach anatomy lessons, I just, I refer to each diagram as like, this is the penis diagram. This is a vulva diagram. This is a uterus diagram. Like we're not going to equate gender with these body parts. And oftentimes students do, and I'm not like going to correct every single student who does that. But I think just like being really aware of the language that I use. And also like, you know, when we, whenever I use scenarios, I use as many gender neutral names and pronouns as possible to just make the scenarios as like vague and just like applicable to anyone and anyone's bodies. Um, And then I've been thinking a lot about kind of just racial inclusivity and like what it means to be a white person walking into a lot of Chicago public schools where like a lot of the students are not white. And I had a Um, one of my last classes with a group of eighth graders, we were talking about flirting versus sexual harassment. And they did like a sorting activity where they had like a phrase and they had to put it into flirting or sexual harassment. And um, the activity always sparks like really good conversation because there's often like really gendered discussions about whether something's flirting or not. And so there was a group of three, four girls in the back. They were all happened to be black and they were really adamant that some of these things were not flirting and were sexual harassment. And they ended up sort of, dominating the conversation in a way that I thought was really empowering for them. I mean, I don't, I like don't want to speak for them, but they were, they were leading the conversation and really making arguments about what it's like to be 
a black woman who's sexualized at age 13 and like how often they feel like their bodies are on display and just having those conversations and and letting them lead and, you know, like chiming in only to facilitate and to make sure that like they weren't being talked over um, was really cool to see. And then the, the teacher was like, okay, you guys are being really aggressive, like take a step back. And I was like, okay, no one's being aggressive. You're just getting too close to me. And that's a COVID concern. So I am going to ask you to back up, but like, you know, no one's being aggressive. We're just having a conversation that I think people have a lot of feelings around. And so it was really cool to see this group of people who may not get to have these conversations where they feel like their voices are empowered. And so I've just been doing a lot of thinking on my own about kind of how to um, empower as many young people's voices, both racially and also like, you know, when I come into a class to do a, a lesson on gender and sexuality, and there's a group of queer students, like how do you empower them to share as much as they want to share? And also like recognize that learning what transgender is when you are transgender is like really mm-hmm. silly and not fair to them. And like, um, kind of how, how to make the best use of them being in that space. So they don't feel like they're just being educated on their own identities. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, one, very excited about your story about, um, you know, empowering like young black women and like, hopefully they can continue to feel like they can speak up, um, in, in certain situations and be part of a discourse, like everyone has a right to be, um, yeah, I think so. I um, because I have uh, volunteered in a predominantly white suburb. Um, it is, um, you know, my most recent class. Like there were kids who were not white, but um, also we received lots of question box questions that were kind of about obviously the kids wouldn't have this vocabulary, but about kind of the fetishization of um, black people in particular, um, both black men and black women. So, and addressing that and trying to give them the tools to recognize um, that that's unfortunately part of our culture and like ways to try to combat that um, either as allies or um, as individuals in those oppressed communities. So um, that's good though. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear from the two of you that um, obviously you as educators are striving to be, um, inclusive but also that there's some like progress happening um kind of at an educator level and at a policy level as well um so sort of um on a similar note though also uh, so on a similar note in the in your episodes about this topic pleasure activism which is episodes 12 and 13 um of course like we talk about or you talk about and i listen intently on like the impacts of capitalism so I'd love to hear a little bit um, from you to, you know, about pleasure activism, just because I think it's such a fascinating topic. And then kind of maybe um, if you would would not mind sharing how you as sex educators um, and kind of like content creators promote pleasure activism or um, kind of like try to perpetuate it in your own experiences. Yeah, Um I mean, I, I'm by no means an expert in this topic. It's Pleasure Activism is a book by Adrienne Marie Brown. And the movement is, it's about more than sexual pleasure. But I think because of our interest in the field, that's kind of where we focused. Um, and it does, it centers Black women in the movement because of systems of oppression that have taught Black women historically that they're not deserving of pleasure or joy, quite frankly. And like, there has to be such an unlearning of that that needs to happen. And so the pleasure activism movement really tries to center Black women to reclaim that right to pleasure. And um, it really also focuses on living in a capitalist society, how 
that functions when people are productive all the time and not taking time for themselves or to just bask in pleasure, whatever that means to an individual. And, um, you know, I said earlier, I don't have hobbies. I work all the time, whether that's podcasting or, or working at my, my full-time job. And, um, you know, Ellie and I talk about this all the time, that part of the reason why we both have mental health struggles is we have a hard time taking moments for ourselves. Um, and that's just something that's so ingrained in us. I think all living in this country um, is just to be productive and work because if not, you are lazy. Taking care of yourself is not prioritized. It's not, um, you know, and, and self-care is so uh, pushed as like getting a mani-pedi or <laughs> something like that rather than just like literally taking care of yourself. Um, so... Yeah, I don't even know if I answered your original question, but something that I'm trying and failing a lot of times to do to um, kind of promote pleasure activism in my own life is to put work away and like fully away. I This may seem really small to a lot of people, but to me, it was a big step. This is the first job I've ever had where I do not have email on work email on my phone so that when I close my laptop, I am done. Um, I have this was a note from Ellie I turn my phone on do not disturb a lot now so that because you can still get text messages that just pop up and it's just like um what's the word I'm looking for like I'm not consenting to, to have this conversation right now right yeah. so it just um you know I'm, I'm trying to be more intentional of just like putting everything else away and focusing on whatever I'm doing in the moment that's for me so it, it's really hard and I fail at it all the time. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to take small steps here and there when I can. I think, well, I can speak to it personally first and then I can speak to it in the classroom. I think, um, and this is on a personal note, but I've experienced like a weird amount of loss in the last few weeks. It's been a bummer and really rough. And I think I've... Um, I mean, I was like on in the car on my way to a funeral on Monday, like texting my coworker about a thing we were working on. And it was like, why? <laughs> like I'm in the car with my family on the way to like bury a family member. Like why, mm-hmm. why is this something I feel so like I have to respond to this message immediately or else like I'm not doing my job. And I think I've, I've noticed that I've taken like a few days off, but I've also like worked just as hard as I normally would, which I think is people would be like, well, that's, you know, you're a hard worker and that's like shows great character. But I think it's also really fucked up. I think it's really fucked up that I am like expected to work really hard um, and like not take time off and not take like a real time off, like time off where it's like, I'm not texting coworkers or my boss or like checking my email, I think is so ingrained in us. And it's something I have a really hard time letting go of. Like if I don't have work to do my coworker will be like, just watch TV or just like play a game. You don't have to like be working. And I like, am not capable. I like, sit and stare at my email or like read something that's like forward. Like I just am really have a really hard time, like kind of distancing myself from that, like that mindset. And I think it's, yeah, it's just so ingrained in like in our society. But I think in a class, I've been thinking about how it shows up in the classroom. And I think this is maybe a subtle example, but one thing that I'm really aware of is I never force students to participate and I never force students to, to share. And I think so often in school, students are forced to do things that they just don't want to do. And they're like, 
Mm. They have to do this activity or they have to read something out loud or they have to answer the question. And it's like, if in my, as long as you're like not being obnoxious and like listening sort of, I'm not going to force you to do anything that you don't want to do. I hated that as a kid. It felt like such a violation. It was so anxiety inducing. And I think allowing kids to have 45 minutes where they know that they're not going to be cold called, where they know that they like can take a step out to grab some water if they need to. And like, I just don't care, I think is really is really huge and just giving some giving kids autonomy to feel like they can like go to the bathroom without like asking permission or like go like taking a step to like breathe if something feels too heavy like giving giving them that space and empowering them to feel like they like know what's best for their bodies and for themselves um just like doesn't happen often and so yeah it's something small but I feel like it's something I can do to just give them a sense of kind of their own like self-care and pleasure and um sense of empowerment yeah, no, I think um, that's incredibly important. I think like the ideas of agency and autonomy um, and weirdly like mindfulness, I feel like comes up a lot for me in terms of like um, talking about, um, you know, me- mental illness and sex and like capitalism work ethic impact on sex and like the inability to be mindful because you're like supposed to be cranking all the time. Um yeah, all of those things are very much interwoven. Um, and I just think it's such a fascinating um, and, and like, frankly, pertinent conversation and kind of topic um, to cover. Um, what are, so this is kind of t- tied into that question and, and sort of the what we were talking about previously, but um, are there little ways that in your minds, um, people who aren't sex educators um, can promote inclusivity um, and accessibility and some of that even like autonomy um, for themselves and others in the way that they talk about sex um, casually, you know, with friends or or partners or, um, you know, whoever they're kind of having a conversation with about it. Ellie, do you want to go first or do you want me to go? I feel like I keep jumping in. (laughs) I can start. I think um, for me, it like, it really comes back to language a lot. And I think part of it's because it's something really easy and really tangible that people can, can do if they, think hard enough and work at it and so I think talking about like yeah in, in even in casual conversations like using people with penises instead of men and using you know partner instead of boyfriend or girlfriend and just like stop ass- kind of refraining from assuming things about how people identify and who people have sex with I think is one thing that's really huge and another thing that I could talk about forever is kind of like letting go of this assumption that that sex means penetrative sex like there's so many different ways that people I've talked about this on like 15 different episodes, but like when two people with vaginas engage in sexual activity, like sex doesn't look the same as with someone when someone with a penis and vagina have sex. And so like letting go of this idea that like sex has one meaning and getting better at defining sex for yourself. And like when you have sex with someone, what does that mean to you? And what does that mean to that person? And like, what have you agreed upon as your definition? And like, what feels good for both of you or all of you? And um, I think, yeah, just like starting to kind of pull away from that. And then I also think just pulling away from the concept of virginity, which I think ties in, like for me, you know, having sex for the first time with someone who didn't have a penis, I like, didn't know like, okay, so does that mean I'm a virgin? Does that mean I'm not a virgin? Like I didn't, I didn't, does that count whatever count means? And I think it's a really harmful narrative that like shames a lot of young people and a lot of young people who, who are queer. And so I think like pushing away from this idea of virginity and like what it means to be a virgin and what it means to you know, have sex, like kind of just thinking about the language that you use and thinking about kind of the harms of that language, I think is, it's like hard, but it's, it's a really 
um, important. Well, not only stopping the, or changing the language around what counts, right? I always heard that kind of framing. It's so annoying. Yeah. But also it's like, let's stop placing value on it. We went off on a really long episode about virginity with this, but like, (laughs) it's so frustrating that it's like somehow your personality or who you are is, is changed. Right. And like that you're no longer like innocent for lack of a better word or like worthy of certain things. Like it's just so gross and like harms so many people. And yeah, I just, I could also talk for two hours about that. Um, something for me too, yes, definitely language. And I'm doing a better job of not making assumptions about people that I'm talking to. Like, M, this is my first time talking to you. And you mentioned you had a partner and you used, uh, he him pronouns for that partner. I know nothing else about your relationship or your partnership. I'm not assuming that the type of sex that you have, I'm not assuming that you're in a monogamous relationship. Like I'm, I try to just now absorb the information that a person has given me and then not attach all of these other assumptions that I might have made previously to that. So I try to do that even in more casual conversations when I'm with friends or meeting someone. The other thing that I cringe so hard when I think about that I used to do and I'm I hopefully don't do now is uh like uh say something is gross just because I'm not interested in that thing um you know we have a group agreement that we use a lot with young people of like don't yuck my yum right and I try to do that now in my personal life too is if a friend talks about a sexual encounter they had that maybe doesn't appeal to me personally just being like that's so great I'm so glad that that was a pleasurable experience for you and not like I don't know why we, we still have to just all this shame around mm-hmm. certain things. And so I'm trying a really hard to not make assumptions about people, but then also to not place judgment or shame on other people's sexual experiences. That's if you're experiencing pleasure, go for it. Like that's awesome. Just cause it's not, um, you know, maybe in my comfort or interest level. I think too, one other thing I've tried to do is um, like as much as I, trying to think of how to like I want to empower as many queer students as I can and I also want to support them so like you know a student who's constantly misgendered at what point is it my job to step in and correct their pronouns so they don't have to continue to do it same thing with like groups of friends that I'm in like at what point is it my job to be like hey actually that person uses they them pronouns and to like make it so they don't continually have to you know do that for themselves I think And, and to just educate people that I'm in social circles with of like you know, this is why using the correct pronouns are important. I like do tend to surround myself with a lot of queer people. So I don't have those conversations a ton, but like Mm -hmm. just being really aware of when I can put my like sex educator hat on in social spaces and just provide general education so that people like are less, they're not assholes to other people in their lives. Yeah. I feel like sort of similarly, Ellie, I, I definitely exist in a realm of queer people and like, um, and it's, funny I guess is what I was gonna say but I don't know if that's the right way to describe it but like I am I I had trans friends at like what I would say is probably a pretty young age I know like some people are like you know don't meet a trans person until they're older maybe that has to do with my age and my generation but like I got comfortable with folks experimenting with different names and pronouns like when I was young and so for me it's like cool yeah like those are your pronouns I'm with it like yeah it's for me it's it doesn't I'm, I'm no longer impacted by it but I got into like kind of a heated argument with my mom over Christmas because um, one of my oldest friends is trans non-binary and um, uses both they, them and, and he, him pronouns. And so uh, my mom 
when talking about that person like presently is okay with it but like sometimes in past we'll use the former pronouns and I have to be like hey we we don't do that and here's why and like I think there's a little bit of a generation gap and so um I try to like I find with older folks like the ways that I am able to promote and perpetuate the use of um proper pronouns like the accurate pronouns with um like folks in my generation who like pick up on it I have a really a much harder time using those same tools um with um you know baby boomer type generation so that's something I'm working on um as well because for I think my inclination is to get angry and frustrated which isn't helpful or conducive to promoting the education um so that's something I'm working on um sort of similarly um kind of I know uh through the podcasting world um a lot of people who teach exclusively kind of or coach adults um I know for myself I had to really amend the way that I thought about sex and sex education in terms of talking about it with youth especially with my own colloquialisms um and in fact when I did use a colloquialism I got a bunch of questions in the question box like I use the term we we were talking about puberty and I used the term like when a penis owner's balls drop or something and I got like 18 cards in the question box were like what does that mean I was okay that's not that wasn't like a helpful term turn of phrase it just like slipped out of my mouth um what are um like what were your experiences in terms of like the learning curve when you started teaching young people I know now you kind of um dabble in in teaching and curriculum developing for not youth but um yeah, what was, what was that learning curve like? I think <laughs> Ellie and I are just looking at each other, giving the other person space to talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, so because I started teaching in grad school and I had been in school, I was in school from when I was four until I was 23 nonstop. And so I, I was a pretty academically, it's disgusting, pretty academically <laughs> focused person. I was used to like academic writing and academic thinking and academic speaking and um, took me some time to like get when I was in a seventh grade classroom to be like, the words you're using are just not like they aren't gonna understand that because that's too mm-hmm. high level for them. And so like really being th- thoughtful about like what words I'm using to talk to a sixth grader and what words I'm using to talk to an eighth grader in ways that they understand. Um, and then I think another thing that I've done is I've um, I was really adamant that I was never going to be on TikTok. Christine will tell you there's an episode about it where I was like I hate TikTok. <laughs> and then I started to realize that like it's so prevalent in young people's lives that if I'm not using it, I'm like likely, I'm, it's just another way for me to like be an outsider when I walk into a classroom. And so I like, hmm. I am on TikTok. I'm not on like young people TikTok. I'm on like cat TikTok and like some other thing that's not related to young people, but like just having a sense of what young people, what media they consume and what TV they're watching and what they're thinking about. And like being able to have a conversation with them about that TV show or that TikTok trend in a way that make sense to them. There was a student who walked into class, I don't know, like a month ago. I was like, Ellie, let me see your, I don't even remember what it was, like step back. And I was like, dude, I have no idea what that is. And he was like, come on, let me see it. And I was like, I literally don't know what this is. He showed it to me. It was like some basketball, like dance move. And I was like, I've never heard of this before. Like, I just, I don't know what you want me to do for you. And I really don't want to embarrass myself in front of this entire class of 37th graders. Um, But like, just having a better understanding of kind of what they, what they think about, what they talk about and what they, what matters to them. um, 
yeah, and like really, t- I, like I read a lot of YA. I like I just think a lot about kind of what teens think about or try to. Are kids not doing the nay nay anymore? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> I I haven't I'm seen sure. a lot of it, but this one, it's just I I wish I could do it for you. It's like some, it's like it kind of looked like they were doing a layup, but like it was a dance move, and I was like, I I just. I'm still caught up on the Dougie. I'm like fully, I'm, I think like 20 years too late still. And I'm like not old again. I'm like very reasonably aged. I'm cool. I'm hip. I just feel like, so I don't have TikTok. Let me just, let me just clarify. I don't have TikTok and I have not downloaded it um, kind of like very intentionally. And, and yeah, I, I understand like why people do especially folks who are content creators just to kind of keep up with the times but I am worried that I will be a perpetual scroller that I will just infinitely spend my time doing that and so I'm scared to download it because I'm worried about what kind of person I will become so Uh, yeah yeah. I told myself I used to scroll for like an hour every night before I went to bed and so in the new year I was like I have to read some form of something before I can be on TikTok before I go to bed. So it's like I read a chapter of some educational book and then I like scroll for 20 minutes and somehow that feels better even though it's kind of the exact same thing. But I feel like at least I've consumed something intellectual before I just like deplete my brain cells. Yeah. And people send me TikToks like either through Instagram or just like the link and I can open them. So I'm I'm getting access. I'm just... Usually I see a TikTok on Instagram like four weeks late. And so I'm like really behind on the trends. That's currently what's <laughs> happening. But Christine used to be a big TikTok person. I know. I I can't remember when I deleted it. It's probably been about a month and I already feel so out of touch, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to noodle on that one more. I'm going to have some meditative time on the TikTok. Um, yeah. Anyway, I Christine. think just about being intentional about it, right? Like about how you're using it and whether you're downloading it or not. I think that that isn't going to look the same for every person. Like when someone says like, no one should be on it ever and blah, blah, blah. That annoys yeah. me. But, and I did love it and use it in a way that didn't um, uh, like, I feel like bother me or impact my mental health at all for a really long time. But then it, it just recently have been having a harder time. And so I was like, mm, yeah, I need to get off. So I deleted all the things that I could scroll with on my phone, like even Pinterest. So <laughs> um, yeah, but I feel out of touch. Something I was thinking about in terms of like the difference between just talking about topics related to sex as an individual versus with students um, and as a facilitator is around personal disclosure. Like I, you know, with my friends, I'm sharing lots of things. And in the classroom, I think that there's a big temptation among a lot of adults to share something personal in order to connect with your students. Mm -hmm. And that's really valid. That connection is so important. Um, And Ellie's example of like normalizing getting tested for STIs, like that involved a personal disclosure, right? And so (laughs) there is such a balance there of, of when, when it's appropriate for lack of a better word and when we should maybe hold back and you can still talk about that topic, but maybe not involve yourself Um, and so, yeah, I think just, uh, I I tend to be really conservative when it comes to personal disclosure in the classroom and one hold back a lot, um, and, and rather just let them lead the conversation and be more of a facilitator. But that's, that's a huge thing that, that changes. It's not centering myself, I guess, in the conversation when I'm in the classroom versus when I'm just having a casual conversation with a friend. 
Yeah, I think that's an important point. I definitely, um, when I talk to folks who are interested in in teaching, um, and and kind of are debating like talking to adults and being more of like a coach versus like a youth educator, um, that is something that comes up a lot because I I definitely wasn't for my um, curriculum certification. Like when I went through training, I definitely had people in my training group. They were like, I really want to teach the middle school and high school age as opposed to like kindergarten or fourth and fifth grade, because it'll be much more easy for me to use my own personal experiences to, um, to, to educate. And I definitely had like a gut reaction to that where I was like, especially if you're like in your early twenties, um, I think like using your own experiences um, to help like lead a lesson or make a point can be very dangerous and inappropriate. So I was like, um, we did get a question that was like, if you're comfortable sharing, it was very sweet. If you're comfortable sharing, like how old were you when you lost your virginity, which like we did have a, a, for this particular class, a diverse group of facilitators. So there was like queer experiences and, and like, hetero experiences alike um and what we did is we wrote up answers and had one of the facilitators read them so it was like all anonymous but we provided like a little bit of insight we're like you know i was able to say i was 16 and i had been in a relationship and it was penis and vagina and like there there was information that we wanted to provide that was like i had done you know i had had oral sex before but not penetrative my first penetrative experience like and some people who were like well i waited until i was like 25 to do anything really because like I was waiting for the right person. Like there's, there was just a diversity of answers and we wanted to give that while keeping it anonymous. So it was like, we found a, found a way of doing that while not like disclosing identities, which I feel like is as close as we can get to finding that balance in an instance like that. Um, That's an incredible loophole. If you have several facilitators in the room. Yeah. Yeah. I've never taught, um, with more than just one other person. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a really cool, cool way to do it. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was kind of funny because one of the other facilitators wrote in their answer, um, like the first time I tried to, um, have sex with my partner at the time who, um, had a penis, like he could not get an erection. So it was like, even though it was like, they were teenagers, it was normalizing, like performance anxiety and just like stuff that we wouldn't talk about normally, if just following the curriculum um, because it was so anecdotal, but also keeping everyone's identities anonymous. Um, so um, kind of as a, a final question for the two of you, um, as um, kind of curriculum developers and educators and um, consultants kind of in certain contexts, um, what are a few tools or recommendations that you would provide um, to other adults, um, I, I'm assuming kind of predominantly parents or teachers, um, when they approach dis- discussing sex um, and sexual health with children. We never have <laughs> Again, to, like, we're just staring at each other. <laughs> we never, on ETA, it's like clear who's going to talk when, or like we don't, or we just cut each other off a fuck ton. So it's, we've never yeah. had to like do this weird little dance. I'll just go while I'm already talking. Um I think one thing for me, there's a common misconception that like when you talk about sex, you talk about it once and you give everyone all the information that they need and then like you move on and that's like the talk. And I think that's really stupid and just not how this works. And so I think normalizing that like you can talk about sex one time with your 10 year old 
and then you realize that maybe you didn't say all the things that you want to say so you talk about it again when that when they're 11 and then like you just continually have conversations as different things um come up or as like you watch a movie together or as like you know a situation happens at school and like that way you kind of develop a like much richer deeper conversation that's not just like a one-time like here's all the things that you need to know when you're 12 and then like nothing else um I think it can be difficult, but I think also the more that you do it and like if you're really intentional about when you do it and how you do it in the spaces that you choose to have conversations in, I think can be, um, it gets less awkward over time to just like continually normalize having these conversations and being that person that your your young people can talk to. Yeah. And I, when thinking about parents, um, you know, I don't have children and so I really try to lean on them as the experts in being a parent. Um but I do think, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents and caregivers to be perfect. And I try to give them lots of grace. And I, I I personally feel like if this is something that they care about and that they're trying to do a good job at, that they're already on the right track and way ahead of the curve, to be honest. So, um, you know, I, I think if you can talk to your children without shame or judgment, if you can encourage their curiosity uh, that that's normal and healthy and, and to, you know, metaphorically leave the door open for conversation so that it's not a one and done. Um, then, then I think that they're doing a great job. This sounds really corny, but I say this to teachers and parents that young people are not necessarily going to remember every single word that came out of your mouth, but they are going to remember how you made them feel. And if you can Mm. focus on just making them feel seen and heard and valued, comfortable, appreciated, all of those things, you're doing a good job and and they're going to be okay. Awesome. Thank you both so much. I feel like we covered an amazing amount of content in this one recording. So I really appreciate you deep diving into some of it with me. Um, Where can folks listen to Embarrassed to Ask and find you on social media? Christine's going to make I'm going to let Ellie take this one. (laughs) Before I say it, um, if parents are listening... Christine recorded an episode with her mom that I actually wasn't there for. And I listened, like I listened to it, like everyone else listened to it. And it's really, really well done. And Lori's an icon. And so like, I would listen to that if you want a parent's perspective, I think it's really, um, really helpful. And on that episode, when I wasn't there, Christine didn't know how to end the episode. So that's why this has become my job. Um, yeah. So if you want to listen to the podcast, um, Apple podcasts, Spotify, um, the links are in our Instagram bio. Our Instagram is just embarrassed to ask. You can DM us on Instagram. You can email us just embarrassed to ask podcast at gmail.com. We do have a question box. So the link is in our um, Instagram bio and we, you know, answer them um, anonymously. And then we post the responses on Instagram. There's a highlight on our Instagram feed. It's like the, the most far to the left. It says listener Q&A. Um, so you can see all the questions that people have asked and we'll start posting new content pretty soon. So stay tuned yay thanks so much y'all thanks so much for having us them yeah it's so fun